Welcome to the Rosenbach Podcast. I'm Alex Ames, and this is Season 1, Books and Bitters, Adventures in Book Collecting, in which we explore the stories behind fascinating objects in the Rosenbach's collection and engage in critical conversations about the place of rare books, libraries, and museums in modern-day life. This episode is a continuation of my conversation with Leslie A. Morris, Susan D. Block, and Sue E. Morris of Harvard University, which began in the last episode titled A Mother's Grief, a University's Library, How Eleanor Elkins Widener's Loss on the Titanic Changed the Rare Book World. I'd like to return to that letter uh, that Mrs. Widener sent to Dr. Rosenbach in 1914, which Leslie had quoted from uh, earlier in our conversation. It's one of my favorite pieces of manuscript material in the Rosenbach collection because it's so revelatory about her state of mind after this terrible disaster. And Sue, I shared a digital copy of it with you uh, prior to the interview, and I'll just quote from it again uh, to refresh your memory and, and that, that of the of the listeners. Quote, over two years have gone since I lost him, and I am no more reconciled than I was at first and never will be again. All joy of living left me April 15, 1912. Forgive me for writing you like this, but you knew Harry and can understand my sorrow. With many thanks, for all of your kindnesses. End quote. What thoughts about the grief process come to mind when you hear this quote from, from this letter that Eleanor Elkins Widener sent to Dr. Dr. Rosenbach? Yeah, um, look, I have, you know, two main thoughts. I think the first is for bereaved parents, it is, you know, very common for them to experience intense grief for two years, you know, two years later, as in the case of Eleanor, because we know that the grief of parents is much more intense and lasts much longer than for other types of losses. It's got something to do with that relationship that, you know, we don't expect our children to die before us and it's got a lot to do with attachment, that attachment bond. But in fact, you know, one study that came to my mind when preparing for this was following the sinking of the ferry in South Korea in 2014, when hundreds of school children drowned, one study found that parents were experiencing very high clinical levels of prolonged grief disorder and depression 18 months later, which really gives us a window into what Mrs. Widener and others who lost children on the Titanic might have experienced, you know, from our everyday or from our current world. And my, my other thought or my second thought is that two years for Mrs. Widener is, you know, on one hand a very long time to be feeling such great pain. So as clinicians, we always encourage recently bereaved individuals to check in with their local doctor or a therapist or counsellor to make sure that what they are experiencing isn't indicative of depression or a complicated grief. You know, we want to do everything to prevent um, a more complicated bereavement. Sue, I have no doubt that there is a listener engaging with this podcast episode who is coping with the intense emotions that accompany grief and loss and wondering what positive, constructive steps to take. 
If someone is experiencing such such a situation, what resources would you recommend for help? Sure. Well, look, I think, you know, if someone is listening who's recently lost a loved one, some of the, you know, the basic constructive steps um, that we recommend, and you can actually hear these steps in what Mrs. Widener did, is creating that daily routine, paying attention kind of to their kind of self-care, such as, you know, catching up on medical appointments if they're overdue or, or, um, you know, even participating in hobbies or interests that help them kind of recharge their batteries. And then tackling isolation by being with others. I think they're the kind of constructive steps certainly early on. But as far as resources go, I like to think of a team approach of people who can support you if you are dealing with recent loss. Most people, you know, in the early weeks after somebody has died, turn to family and friends where they can talk and reminisce about the person. And also the family can offer practical assistance, especially, you know, if they have young children. So this can be particularly helpful. But as I said before, I would also recommend checking in with your local doctor because they have a sense of any other medical uh, issues you have, but also just acknowledging how physically stressful grief can be because I think we always uh, think that it's emotionally stressful, but we do need to pay attention to people's physical health. Um, Other resources are, you know, attending a support group. Uh, A lot of local hospices run bereavement support groups, even if the person who died hadn't been a patient of the hospice, as well as within religious or spiritual organisations. And then, you know, for people who particularly have very limited support or who feel that they're stuck, I think seeking individual grief counselling, you know, is a really good next step. And obviously in today's digital world, there's lots of information available online, whether it's uh, podcasts or, you know, books online as well as, you know, self-help books. And I think that it just goes a long way for when people connect with others and hearing that what they're experiencing is kind of normal or expected or perhaps they need further attention, that, you know, this can really, um, you know, help them as they start in those certainly those first few months. As we've discussed at various points already uh, in this conversation, the world has undergone a few years, unlike any others in living memory with the coronavirus pandemic, And in the United States in particular, people have come face-to-face with the vulnerability of our public health care infrastructure, the fragility of our social safety net, and the reality of human mortality in profound ways. You work in bereavement services, and I'm wondering, how do you think those of us who live in Western capitalist cultures might become more prepared for and comfortable with the realities of life and death following this difficult experience of of the past couple of years. Yeah, sure. I mean, that's a, that's a that's a big topic, but you know, I I would say I think, you know, as a society, we need to start talking, you know, much more about life and death from a very young age, uh, and not shy away from it. Um, for too long, you know, we've lived in our Western society where we think we can fix everything and that we have, you know, a sense of control over over things. And the death of a loved one and now the pandemic both greatly challenge this view of the world that, you know, we really don't have the same amount of control uh, as we think we do. And, you know, I th- you know we also really need to uh, 
dedicate more funding to training health professionals in grief and loss and to develop bereavement programs in hospitals, for example, or other institutions, as bereavement is really an unmet public health issue. And, you know, sadly, the pandemic has highlighted this. Dr. Susan Block, to you I'd like to pose the question, when you hear Leslie tell us about Mrs. Widener's grief experience, what major lessons do you take away? Well, uh, I think that this is a, a wonderful example, as you said, Alex, of kind of resilience and kind of a, a human triumph over really unimaginable trauma and grief. And I just want to step back and kind of think about what that experience must have been like on the Titanic, Um, this seemingly safe, new, powerful boat that was, uh, you know, a, a boat of the future in lots of ways, having it be destroyed totally unexpectedly by an iceberg. And the immense sort of terror, trauma, disruption, uh, stress of that event for everybody who must have been on board. It's kind of unimaginable. And how Mrs. Widener in going through this um, must have been herself terrified Um, And then to get through this experience, which lasted for, it wasn't like, you know, a brief experience, but there was a lot of uncertainty and fear and hardship that went on for, you know, a sort of sustained period. And then to find that both her husband and her beloved son are gone. Um, That is an extraordinary trauma. And I think we all recognize it as such. And it brings with it through the loss of these two beloved people, um, deep, deep grief and sorrow. And I think that her capacity to continue to mourn, um, to struggle with meaninglessness and hopelessness at times, as um, we've heard in some of what Leslie has said, and yet over time to find her way to a beautiful new life, a constructive new life for herself um, that included turning this tragedy into something meaningful uh, in relation to the person that she lost, her son especially, but also for the future, for other people, is really kind of a a model of um, good coping. And I think in the present moment, as we have been kind of tossed around in this profound way by COVID um, and all the disruptions, all the loss, all the anxiety, the so many lives lost. And for certain people, you know, who have had been in particularly vulnerable situations to have lost many members of a family all at once, I do see a lot of parallels. And I think both individuals and we as a society are going to be in a stage of perhaps unrecognized for some, but nonetheless real grief and mourning for some time, for the certainty of the past, uh, for the kind of stability of our world, um, and for individual losses of people 
um, who um, are no longer with us. And so I think there's a challenge at an individual level and at a societal level to us to mourn the individual losses, to use the experience of disruption and uh, dysfunction that we've all seen during the COVID pandemic in the United States and worldwide as a way of learning how to be safer, how to take better care of ourselves and each other. If we can do that, that is in some sense like Mrs. Widener building the library for her son. And at the same time, those people who've had personal losses during this time of loved ones um, are engaged in this, you know, immensely difficult personal kind of private task of um, saying goodbye in their hearts to this person who meant something powerful to them, you know, and figuring out how to hold on to those memories and how to move forward with their own lives. And that's a real paradoxical, psychologically complex task for people to do. Mrs. Widener, I think, is a quite remarkable example of someone who was able to do that very well. Susan, explain to us how psychology and medical science view grief and loss today. If we think about them as both physiological and psychological phenomena, what are traumatic death and loss, and what do they do to our bodies and to our brains? Well, the first thing I want to say about this is I think that uh, grief has um, received relatively little attention um, in both the, the psychological and especially in the medical scientific world. And so I think it's really, uh, there's a lot more that we have to learn in this space. And I think the fact that it has received so little attention, in spite of being universal experience um, for human beings and all creatures, uh, all living creatures, tells us a lot about our society's tendency to avoid thinking about, talking about, exploring grief and loss and death and dying. And I think that's worth really emphasizing here. Um, I know as a medical student, um, I barely learned anything about grief and about death and dying uh, in medical school. And it was mentioned, I think, in one or two brief classes, but there was never any effort to kind of give us a sense about, well, if, if you're a doctor, what is your role here? How do you help people with this? What is helpful to people who are going through this kind of an experience? And I think, uh, you know, given that, that doctors are involved in, you know, in many aspects of caring for people who are dying and being there with their families and often being there around the patient's death, it's shocking to me that we know, still have so little training um, in this area. And while it's gotten a little bit better with the advent of palliative care, I think it's still completely inadequate um, uh, for, to really provide the kind of quality uh, care and support for people going through this kind of a loss. And I want to emphasize that, as you said, Alex, it's a psychological experience and people are at risk 
of um, uh, developing complicated grief, which maybe we can talk about later, uh, developing major depressions, having post-traumatic stress disorder, um, uh, increased uh, alcohol um, consumption, and so on. There are many psychiatric sequelae or, you know, uh, syndromes that can arise out of a serious loss. But they're also, and this is, I think, less recognized, um, medical risks for people who have endured a serious loss. And these include death um, at a higher rate than for people who haven't had a loss, worsening of cardiovascular disease, hypertension, increased risk of other kinds of infections, perhaps increased um, uh, vulnerability to cancer. And these risks put people who have had a loss at a higher degree of risk. And I think most physicians, for example, are just not aware of this and don't pay much attention to it. And as we learn more about stress pathways, death of a loved one is the greatest stress that human beings endure in their lifetime. And yet we kind of ignore it in terms of its both psychological and sort of physical consequences. So there's a lot, lot more learning and a lot of improvements in care that I think we could make in the medical and the mental health space that would help people, human beings cope better with these inevitable life experiences that are so part of being human. So Susan, this leads me to another question for you, which is how does a grieving person know if their grief process would benefit from outside help, including the help of a therapist or a medical professional? Alex, I think that it's important to recognize that most people who have a loss um, kind of move through their grief with the help of their own support system, their family, their friends, their church, their, you know, um, uh, whatever, whatever it is that they, that they have constructed in their lives to kind of as a community. But there are about 10 or 15% of people who really kind of get into more significant difficulty. And I think it's hard to tell during the first few months after a loss because many people can be, you know, a wreck uh, after a loss and it's appropriate. Um, the thing that I always look for is, is this person stuck? Is this person um, able to move, take even baby steps forward over the first months, kind of after the person dies? And if, if the person is, you know, say around six months after a loss and they're like they were after one month, that starts to make me worry. Um, whether the grief is sort of more complicated, whether there's a depression complicating the grief, um, whether there are elements of trauma or whether the person might be getting, you know, into trouble with substances, because it's very common for people in the early phases after a loss to increase their drinking and their consumption of other mind-altering substances. And that does not, in general, help the grieving process. It may numb the feelings, but it doesn't move the grieving process ahead. And so if I start, if I see someone who's really stuck by around six months, I start worrying. Now, I make allowances or, I, you know, I would be more, less worried if it was 
a, a parent who had lost a child because that kind of grief tends to be slower and harder and just more challenging to kind of move through. But I would be attentive to the issue of, of being stuck and not making progress as the main um, thing that one would see that would make um, somebody think that getting some professional help would be uh, useful. Obviously, if someone is not sleeping and losing weight and staying in bed all day and um, uh, uh, activity, you know, and, and not able to function at all after a couple months, I would be worried. But there can be pretty extreme reactions to grief in the very initial phase. But the important thing is, is there a little bit of movement? And it can be glacial, but as long as it's movement, um, I find that kind of reassuring. Um, and I think that if you have somebody who doesn't have a good support system, it's particularly important to kind of check in with that person because it's going to be hard for others to notice that they, whether things are going well or not. And I also encourage people to um, schedule an appointment with their primary care doctor a couple of months after the loss. And that's for multiple reasons, um, uh, including the fact that people's health can sometimes, you know, go out of whack after a loss, but also to have somebody put eyes on this person and think about, you know, whether they're coping and perhaps ask them some, some questions about appetite and sleep and just to kind of monitor whether they're maybe, you know, whether they're moving forward or maybe more stuck in um, an early phase of grief. The world has gone through um, a couple of years, unlike any other uh, in, in living memory with the coronavirus pandemic. In the United States in particular, people have come, as we've discussed, face to face with the vulnerability of, of human life, of our public health care infrastructure, and the fragility of our so social safety net. You both work in palliative care and bereavement services. How do you think those of us who live in Western capitalist cultures might become more prepared for and comfortable with the realities of life and death? I think this is a very important question, Alex. And I think it's, there's a, there are many kind of answers, none of them easy. But I do think, as we were alluding to earlier, that it really requires a, something of a cultural reset. You know, it's fascinating to me that only about a third of Americans, for example, have any kind of um, health care planning for the end of life. That I, I remember when I used to teach in Europe, the Europeans always used to joke, well, Americans are the only people on earth who think death is optional. <laughs> and I think they're on to something that, you know, we have, we are a death denying culture and uh, we like to think that we are in control of our world and death threatens that. Um, we're a very individualistic culture and um, there's this idea that everybody kind of faces it privately and without, um, uh, other people around. I think death needs to, and serious illness and vulnerability are all linked. And one of the things that the coronavirus epidemic has shown us is how we're all vulnerable. We are all vulnerable. 
And once one starts accepting that, I think it becomes um, a little bit easier to begin moving towards thinking about um, death, about disability, um, both of which are things no one wants to think about, but are potentials for each of us and actuality in the case of death. Um, And so I, I think that conversation, community, and then I think that we need to figure out how to make our healthcare systems more accountable for taking a role, a leadership role, in um, helping people anticipate, talk about, and plan for their own future care so that people are assured that their wishes will be honored and that what matters to them will be um, taken into account in the decisions that are made about their health care, not just at the end of life, but all the way through the trajectory of life. Um, and I, so I, th- I think it, it really requires us being willing to kind of face some of this. And it's a lot easier to avoid it. I don't have a, any kind of good prescription about how to get people to kind of confront it. Um, people have to confront it when they get sick or somebody they love dies. And that's, um, it's a, a hard moment to confront something when you're also dealing with kind of a crisis. With that, I want to actually close out this conversation back where we started with Eleanor Elkins Widener creating this collection. And my final question is for, is for Leslie. You described for us how Mrs. Widener would spend time in the library she built. Um, it was deeply involved with its construction, deeply involved sort of with specifically that space in the, in the memorial room. What do you think she was experiencing and feeling as she entered that space, engaged with the library, sat in that space years after Harry's death? And do you think that Mrs. Widener ever truly left the Titanic behind, even late in in her life after remarrying and seemingly perhaps to the outside world moving on? Well, I don't see how you can ever completely recover from such an experience, losing a husband and son, being out there on the North Atlantic in a lifeboat, witnessing the horrors that were going on. I think you can move on from it, but I can't imagine that it ever truly leaves you. I think on her visits to the library, I mean, the the memorial room is a very quiet and calming space. And I'm sure that when she came back and after she'd done what she thought was her duty to check up and make sure that everything was in good order and properly dusted and that the fresh cut flowers were on the desk, that she would spend some time chatting with the curator of the collection about who was using it, um, what was going on, and perhaps just sitting quietly and thinking back. Thank you for listening to the Rosenbach Podcast. 
Check back soon for another peek into the Rosenbach's remarkable collection of rare books, manuscripts, art, and artifacts, and for more fascinating conversations about history, literature, and culture. The Titanic Saga continues on the next episode of the Rosenbach Podcast. We will make our own transatlantic journey to talk with staff at Bernard Quaritch Limited, the rare book firm that sold materials to Harry Elkins Widener before his ill-fated Titanic journey. A few years ago, I visited Quaritch's beautiful headquarters in London and dug through their historic archives to find some fascinating documents connected to the Widener family and their book buying. Over morning tea with the staff at Quaritch, I learned more about the company's work. Together, we'll engage in an encore of my earlier visit to learn about the company's historical materials connected to the Titanic and ask some questions about what it's like to deal in rare books. If you haven't yet listened to the previous episodes of the Rosenbach podcast, in which the details of the Rosenbach-Widener-Titanic saga are offered, please be sure to go back and check them out. To learn more about the Rosenbach, visit rosenbach.org. We host a variety of on-site and online events and public programs, and always welcome questions from listeners about how to use our collections. My boss, the Rosenbach's curator and director of collections, Judith M. Gustin, and I offer a behind-the-bookcase hands-on tour on-site at the Rosenbach in which visitors can view and even handle our artifacts connected to the Titanic, so keep an eye on the website for when that tour is next offered. Our Titanic holdings are always accessible to researchers who make a free appointment to visit our reading room. The Rosenbach's community reaches all around the globe, brought together by our love for history, rare books, manuscripts, and the arts. I hope you'll consider supporting the Rosenbach and this podcast by becoming a member today. It's one of the best ways to help us with projects like this. Memberships start at just $55 and give you access to everything we have to offer online and in person. Thank you for your support. If you enjoy the introductory and concluding music featured on the podcast, which was composed and performed by Rosenbach Board of Directors member Yolanda Wisher and her band The Afro Eaters, and was recorded at WRTI 90.1 in Philadelphia for NPR Live Sessions, visit WRTI.org to learn more. Also, please consider purchasing Yolanda Wisher's new album. Just visit Rosenbach.org for information. The Rosenbach Podcast is supported by a grant from the Evelyn Toll Family Foundation. Thanks again, and I look forward to continuing our conversation on the next episode of the Rosenbach Podcast.